Welcome to the WeChat Divorce Podcast. Conversations about real people, real situations, and real divorce. Your hosts, Karen Chalou and Katherine Shanahan, co-founders of Divorce You Solutions, share their personal and professional experience to demystify the big business of divorce. Get ready to gain clarity and even have a laugh or two. It's time for WeChat Divorce. Welcome to WeChat Divorce Podcast number five. Today, we're talking about managing divorce and children with special needs. Hello, I'm Catherine. I'm here with Karen, and we are the co-hosts of WeChat Divorce Podcast. First off, please know divorce does not define you. It is a part of our story, and it may be a part of your story, and that's okay. You're not alone. We are here to share our insight and inspirations with you by addressing the good stuff and the bad stuff. You know, the BS. Hopefully, these podcasts will help you move forward in a positive direction. So today, for the first time, we have a guest on our show, and we're happy to welcome Linda Anderson, attorney. She's a certified elder law attorney. Linda is one of the approximately 50 certified PA elder law attorneys. She's a longtime member of NAELA. Linda, what is that exactly? That's the abbreviation for NALA, the National Association of Elder Law Attorneys. Okay. She served as chair of the Elder Law Section of the Pennsylvania Bar Association, vice president and director for the Pennsylvania Association of Elder Law Attorneys. She's the co-chair of the Delaware County Bar Association Elder Law Committee, that is a mouthful, and an invited member of the Special Needs Alliance. She's also been elected to the ACTEC. Again, Linda, help us out with that one. Okay, so that's ACTEC, American Council of Trust and Estates. It's a group of lawyers that do trust and estates work. Okay, great. Anderson Elder Law is a firm specializing in the legal issues affecting elders, the disabled, and their families. Linda and her experienced staff work to help clients navigate the legal, medical, and financial issues that arise later in life. They provide advice in all elder law and planning needs. They support their clients through calm waters or crisis, and they help plan to weather any storm. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. Hello, Linda. Hi. So, Linda, tell us, how does all of what I just said factor into a family going through divorce? So, you know, when when you're actually looking for a lawyer, many times you'll Um, when you're thinking about divorce, you're talking to a family law attorney. And a family law attorney is going to have an area of expertise in terms of um, equitable distribution and divorce and child support. Where I will often get contacted by the divorce attorneys is to bring in the expertise that relates to special needs planning. And in terms of elder law, just to understand the connection between elder law and special needs planning, There's an overlap between understanding the public benefits for both seniors and for special needs children and the use of trusts in both cases. So there is a body of knowledge that applies not just for people that may be over a certain age, but anybody of any age that's really struggling to maintain control of their medical issues, their legal issues, their financial issues, and that they must understand the role of public benefits. That's the area of elder law expertise. Okay. Wow. I, I didn't really realize that. Did you, Catherine? No, I didn't. And it's, you know, we have a lot of people getting divorced later in life. So the elder care is so important. But we often overlook what the special needs um, interaction is, which is why we're so glad we met you. Because it's a lot of information, which we could probably talk for two days with you about. Right. 
but today we'll specialize. We'll talk about the special needs. Right. Right. I have um, a client now who has a special needs child, and they have not filed for Social Security. Uh, how old is the child? A, a minor under the age of 12. And can, the mom never considered filing because she assumed she would be receiving support. Now she doesn't have support. She doesn't know how she's going to care for him and his medical um, needs. So how would how you, you address something like that? How do you like unravel that? that yes, right. exactly. Right. So when we're talking about the, um, the special needs child, whether there is a divorce context or not, the idea is to just understand um, the difference between different public benefits and entitlements. And so when you um, are a parent, they become actually some of the best experts in the public benefits area because they are the ones that are advocating for their children. So they will know the difference between SSI uh, and Medicaid, which are means tested and are determined based on income and assets. And they'll know the difference between SSI and Medicaid or SSD, Social Security Disability, and Medicare, which are not going to be based on income or assets. And so when you're talking about somebody who's 12 years old and you're thinking about applying for SSI, that's when you have to understand how do the, um, the assets and the income of the parent actually affect the eligibility for that child. And there are two sets of rules. There's the child who's under age 18 and then there's a child who's over age 18. And so many times the parents are correct in that they're not going to bother to apply for SSI because there's family deeming of income and assets. And so their resources may be over a couple thousand dollars, and they know we're just never going to be eligible for the SSI. But that doesn't mean that they may not be eligible for Medicaid. So in some cases, when somebody applies for SSI and it's approved, they will automatically be linked to Medicaid, which is called medical assistance in Pennsylvania. But in some cases, because the resources in the family are so high, they'll be just Medicaid. So the parent who's um, helping a child who's under age 18 may not have actually made a mistake by not actually applying for the SSI. Okay. If that child is on SSI, then it relates to a couple important divorce issues. If SSI and Medicaid are based on income and assets, when that child is getting child support, that's actually going to be income. When the parent, the custodial parent, gets alimony, that's income. So those are things that unless you're actually analyzing um, the negotiation of the divorce in terms of how we're structuring these income items every month, that may actually impact the child who's, by virtue of having low assets and low income, may already be on SSI. So there may be in-kind distributions. Maybe there'll be other alternative payments. Maybe there'll be a a combination of things. But in most of the cases that I see, we're not actually relying on SSI until the child gets to be age 18. And at that point, the family deeming doesn't actually, um, you know, occur anymore. So the issue that usually comes up is if we have child support, where many typical uh, families may actually think, well, child support's going to end at age 18, for a special needs child, it may never end. The child turns 18, and all of a sudden the child is getting income directly, uh, a legal right to that income, and if they're trying to qualify for SSI, which may be you know um, under $800 if you combine the Pennsylvania supplement and the, uh, the federal SSI payment, all of a sudden that check coming in 
for the uh, child support is going to have a dollar for dollar reduction of the SSI to the point of eliminating that monthly payment. And so you don't want that. What's the solution? And this is usually where the family law attorneys are calling and they're saying, well, what do we do? Well, again, you can look for in-kind distributions or alternative payments, but usually the, um, the go-to technique is to establish what's called a first-party, self-settled, special needs trust. It's also called a D4A trust. All these names are the very same trust. Sounds complicated. But before you go into that, can we just back up a little bit? And you said when the child becomes 18, they receive support directly. Is it from both parents? No, I'm assuming that there's going to be a child support payment from one parent that's due to the child. And because the child is now over age 18, it's considered to be a legal right directly owned by that child. Okay. So is this in the agreement before they sign their divorce finalization? Yes. So so even if it's an amicable divorce, it's still going to uh, include a court order assigning the right to that child support to this trust this first party uh, special needs trust that we're talking about. And if you line up all the stars perfectly, then that income, when it's automatically assigned into that first party trust, isn't going to hurt the eligibility of the child for the SSI. The transfer of the income into the trust doesn't cause a transfer penalty, and the existence of a trust, if it's properly drafted, doesn't create a resource that will um, jeopardize the eligibility. So. A few people have mentioned that their concern is that they're still caring for that child. So they're the lower earner spouse. Now this trust is receiving that continued payment, but they still have costs and needs daily that they're outputting for right. their for their child. Are they allowed to get money from that trust to pay that if they're not getting it directly? Yes. So the idea is that with careful choice of a trustee, um, the trustee is making the, uh, the income and the in principle, if needed, available to take care of the child. And when you're making a selection of who the trustee is, they're going to be aware of the SSI rules and be very careful in terms of how they structure the distributions. So many times they may be paying the rent directly to a landlord or purchasing other things in kind, but somebody who knows all of those rules is going to be able to manage to supplement whatever the income is for the parent. It's the key is, is that the income and the assets of the parent are no longer actually counted for that child's eligibility. Very good. And during, you mentioned alimony earlier, so, which would be considered income. Right. So is it better in some cases to take more of an equitable distribution than alimony? I think you have to look at every single case. Mm-hmm. And in terms of that, when you're thinking about a special needs divorce case, usually the custodial parent is going to have not only um, you know, the typical child care issues, they're going to be amplified, which may have even a bigger effect on the ability to earn as well as the increased expenses. So all of that goes into the mix for the family law attorney to negotiate the best terms for that, um, that custodial child. And absolutely, you, you look at both. So it sounds like it's better to come to you first and find out what the guidelines are before you negotiate any kind of a settlement. Well, I think the thing, the best way to approach this is to make sure that the family law attorney is bringing somebody in um, that is familiar with special needs at the beginning. 
so that we understand what the likely um, progression is going to be for this child's lifetime and to look at what the budget's going to be and to think about how are we structuring the estate plan for the parents, how are we going to meet th this child's goals and needs. And then you think about, okay, how are we going to separate the finances? Mm -hmm. So, Linda, this is all based on a child being eligible for SSI when they turn 18. I'm just wondering where the line is drawn as to whether a child would need a trust or not, because I think some parents would disagree as to the level of disability of their child. So when we think about typical family law disputes, it's interesting. The statistics are not really clear as to whether the risk of divorce increases with a special needs child. There's one report that says it's not 50% as it is for the rest of us, but it's actually as high as 85%. I've heard that as well. So when you think about what it is that's the most common struggle that pushes people to up to the 85%, it is oftentimes how do we meet all of these requirements? And there may be very different points of view that each spouse has. And a typical one, especially with mental health or intellectual disabilities, there may be a difference of opinion as to how to actually plan for the future and whether or not we want to have incentives in terms of actually trying to get, you know, self-motivation and actual, um, you know, the child to assume some burden of worry for the, um, his or her own care versus another parent who may look at it and say, you know what, there are limitations that this child are going to, is going to have no matter how old the child is and the safety net has to exist even for the more basic things and that I'm not going to risk having somebody fall through the cracks. Those are really difficult decisions, but by virtue of the divorce, each parent will be able to set up his or her own trust and actually frame the issues as they see them. So that's usually, you know, in the, in the strongest divorces, we may actually have two separate trusts. It's much preferable, though, if we could have sort of a reconciliation of those two points of view so that we set up one third party um, supplemental needs trust and that there's a careful choice of one trustee, one pool of money for investments that's, you know, again, we're looking at um, investment choices and distribution schedules and choice of remainder beneficiaries. If the parents can get together on that, they're going to save some money. Mm -hmm. So it's, again, one more thing to put on the list. Wow. That's a That's, lot. That is a lot. And so much of that I would have never even thought about. So thank you. So what are some of the other issues that a family with um, a special needs child or children will be facing when they're going through their divorce? Right. So just to sort of, um, you know, transition from talking about the public benefits, if people need more information about um, just really getting a very firm foundation on public benefits, I would refer them to the Special Needs Alliance website, and there is a free trustee guide that has pages of information about the difference between SSI, Medicaid, SSD, Medicare, and the difference between a first-party trust and a third-party trust. So you start with your education, okay? Mm -hmm. The second part that they what need... What is that website, Linda? SNA is Special Needs Alliance, and it's I think it's specialneedsalliance.org. Okay. So if we make sure that people at least have that resource, and then they continue to want to go to the next area to understand, which is as the child gets to be age 18, whether it's a divorce setting or not, um, the idea of this child becoming uh, an adult means that we have to evaluate how are we going to get what's referred to as surrogate decision making. And for any adult who's now age 18, the idea is to consider 
If you can't actually manage your legal or your financial or your medical issues, who do you trust to actually step in? And for somebody with special needs, that becomes even more important. And for somebody who is the special needs child of divorced parents who often have control issues, it's usually a very big deal. And so we look at the start with the analysis that just because somebody has um, a diagnosis or um, you know an identification as having intellectual disabilities or some other kind of medical um, uh, diagnosis, that doesn't mean that they're incapacitated from a legal standard. Okay. And so even though there may be a guardianship for somebody who's a minor, when they get it to age 18, you have to consider, well, if they truly are incapacitated as an adult, that guardianship has to be recast as for an incapacitated person. And anytime there's a guardianship, the court decides who's going to be the guardian of the person to make medical decisions, who's the guardian of the estate to make the financial decisions. So is a guardian and a surrogate one and the same? So the broader term is surrogate, and okay. underneath that label, one type of surrogate decision maker would be the guardian. Okay. okay. The other type that's, more, that's uh, preferable if there's no um, disagreement between parents, is the concept of an agent. And when you have a financial power of attorney or a medical power of attorney, that's the document where our special needs uh, adult is now going to say, who is it that's going to be making medical or financial decisions for me? And in a divorce context, again, that's a negotiation. And who's going to actually take care of assuming the burden of worry and whether or not the other parent's going to be consulted and on what circumstances and in terms of educational decisions and transition plans for, with, you know, thinking about between age 18 and 21. All of those things have to be on somebody's radar with proper legal authority. And that's the time when, uh, when they're, you know, reaching uh, age 18 to even put those things in place. So before they're 18, typically both parents are... Natural guardians. Right. Right. So beyond that, I'm hearing you say it would need to be one or the other. It should be one or the other. Wow. So how is that determined? Well, I think you you look at the person, uh, the special needs adult now. Mm -hmm. And my preference is, is that we use a guardianship as last resort. That we don't want a guardianship that necessarily takes all the decision-making authority from that individual. And when you have a guardianship, the court continues to um, remain involved for that person's life. There are annual accountings that are required, and when the person dies, there's an accounting then. And then in order to actually make important decisions, the court may have to be consulted. So all of that court involvement usually requires more significant legal fees. You avoid that if you can use a power of attorney for finances and medical. Right. And no matter what we do, whether it's guardianship or the power of attorney, if the child's going to be receiving uh, benefits from the Social Security Administration, there's a whole nother process to become a representative payee. And again, parents are going to be very well versed in the rep payee system and making those annual reports and, and keeping good records. So they'll know how to do all of that, usually well before age 18. Okay. And when establishing a special needs trust, it's important to have it funded. Right. So not only are you funding it through the monthly payments that you receive, like the life insurance policies. The beneficiary should not be the children. It should be the trust. Right. So just in the few minutes that we've talked, we've actually talked about two different kinds of trusts. And when we're talking about actually having the court order to irrevocably assign the child support, that money's going into what's called a first-party trust. And the, the good news is that that transfer in, to, it doesn't cause a transfer penalty, and the trust isn't a resource. 
but those first-party trusts are going to have what's called a payback. When that child dies, the trustee has to repay Medicaid for whatever the child's received. So that first-party trust is not the same kind of trust a parent would actually establish. That third-party trust, there is no payback. There's no requirement under the federal law to repay for Medicaid when the parents proactively set up their estate plan. So when you think about some parents that are just so overwhelmed that they don't do their estate planning, what they're saying is that they're fine just allowing the money that might go to that special needs child to ultimately end up in a first party trust that ultimately will go back and have a payback. Oh wow, that's interesting. I didn't know and that. And if they actually just handle it and create their own third party trust, they will avoid the payback. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about most of my clients, getting that third party trust together whether it's one or two of them for the divorced uh, couple, the biggest assets are typically retirement accounts and real estate. Right. Anytime you're putting those assets into a trust, you have to really make sure that, uh, that whoever's drafting the trust is careful in terms of the qualified accounts and that the beneficiary designations are proper, the trust is drafted properly, so that we don't lose the ability to have the, the income tax deferral so that we have the trust actually qualify as a designated beneficiary. And then with real estate, you know, many parents have come into my, you know, my office and say, we really want to be able to maintain the real estate for this child, no matter how long the child lives. But the, the bottom line is, is that if you're putting real estate inside of a trust, there must be a corresponding uh, piece of cash that's available to maintain the real estate and the child. And most times, people um, are not going to be able to have savings to meet those goals. So their financial planner has to run the budget, and then they usually get some kind of life insurance policy. But it would be a mistake not to talk to a financial planner who knows about the difference between term insurance, universal insurance, Mm -hmm. and whole insurance. This policy has to pay when you die, no matter what. And a term policy, you may get a 10-year or 15-year level premium, and if you live 30 years, you haven't actually met your goal. So when you're actually doing this, you're putting your team together. It's not enough to have a family law attorney or a special needs attorney. You also have to bring in the financial planner. Which are really great points. So to hear you correctly is that a lot of times, especially couples in mediation, the spouse who is the in control of the finances, I should say spouse, will say, we have a, a special needs trust set up. And he's probably thinking that first trust that's set up and that's really not adequate enough, you really need that second it's trust that's third funded, a third party, which would be their assets, how they fund it. I think most cases people will have come in with a third party trust buried in a document and not recognizing until closer to age 18 that they may need to establish a first party trust for the child support. So usually if it's a child with um, you know, disabilities that are from a very young age, they may have already gotten good advice to set up a third-party trust. But if they haven't, you know, many parents will assume, well, I'm just gonna disinherit a child, or I'm just gonna rely on the siblings and their good will to take care of their brother or their sister. But you can't actually um, assume that that's actually good planning. No, and what if you have a case where you're married for the second time and your stepchildren are disabled and you are now divorcing and you're, are in control of you're getting most of your spouse's assets or your spouse is now elderly. Right. So so when you think about estate planning for blended families, that's hard. Hard enough. Mm-hmm. But estate planning 
for blended families, including a special needs child that may be a shared child or maybe not, means that we have to really have a spreadsheet and a clear conversation as to what assets are going where at the death of each spouse. Most times when we're talking about estate planning, we're assuming that there's a collective pocketbook that um, first spouse, second spouse dies, then it's distributed. What happens usually in those more complicated cases is that somebody may come to the marriage and say, I have certain assets that in my mind are committed to this child. Maybe they were inherited from a parent, maybe they were just accumulated, maybe it's a life insurance policy, but the idea is is to actually have a, um, the documents refer to these um, arrangements and then in some cases you can have even like a more limited postnuptial agreement that says that if there is an inheritance to that other spouse, that there's an agreement as to how that spouse would then distribute them if it's actually, you know, if the control's turned over or if we set up a trust for that second spouse and then the assets are going to pass in a particular way. So the documents tell a story. And when you look at the documents and you look at the beneficiary designations and you look at the third-party trust, it has to tell the story that reflects the agreement of the people. Mm-hmm. So, and it has to be actually negotiated. Which is a very good and most important conversation to have if you are going to remarry. Yes. And there's this situation involved. Have this conversation first. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, when what better time to have the conversation than when everybody's getting along? Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. Yeah. There's, you don't want to put any negotiation to the most stressful time and put your special needs child at risk of not actually getting what you thought was going to happen. That just is not going to be uh, the best plan. It's and don't assume it's taken care of. And don't assume anything. Yeah. Right. So, Linda, what would be your recommendation for a client working with a family law attorney in the midst of divorce and they have not brought in counsel such as you? What would the conversation be with their attorney? Well, I think like? I think the thing that they have to make sure that the attorney is aware of is that the you know what are the current public benefits that the child's eligible for, and what exactly is the plan you know ad, after age eighteen, and to just ask directly how do we maximize the public benefits that this child's going to need? How do we make a, a traditional estate plan for a special needs child work? knowing that we're separating our finances. And so those two questions will actually prompt the family law attorney to consider, you know, if there are areas of expertise where they've got to bring somebody in. That's good. Very good. I think a lot of clients wouldn't even know how to approach that question with their attorney. Well, again, it brings to the point that one parent, especially the parent who really wants to get divorced, doesn't agree that their child has a problem. Right. To the level that the other spouse reveals usually the caretaker, the primary caretaker. They just may not see eye to eye on that. Mm -hmm. And that may be the pressure that really just pushes everything over the edge. Mm -hmm. So Linda, what else do we need to think about today as we're discussing divorce and children with special needs? As if that's not enough, I have my head is (laughs) spinning. spinning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the thing to understand is that there's some really good resources on the Special Needs Alliance website. One of them is actually a directory of what are referred to as pooled trusts. So one of the more difficult choices for parents of special needs children is who actually is going to take over when they die. And so in the divorce context, we're hoping that they're actually negotiating who's on first and who's on second. And let's assume that they do. 
But then when you think about actually putting um, the team in place for when they actually might pass away, because none of my clients believe they're ever going to die, but in case they did, you know, who is it that's going to be the caregiver for that child? We want a family member, if possible, to make a commitment to assume the, the burden of worry. At the same time, that individual family member may not have any expertise in public benefits, in managing investments, in actually doing um, tax returns. And so the idea is to be smart about bringing in a co-trustee to work hand-in-hand -hand with the family member. And what's interesting about this pooled trust directory is, again, many of my clients are more modest uh, of means. They're not looking at um, total resources in the millions where we may be able to call up a conventional bank or trust company that would be able to, you know, assume the corporate trustee function for their typical fees. It may be a more modest estate which won't um, uh, justify the, the, you know, the typical fees that these great banks and trust companies may have. So these pooled trusts are a different type of trust it's not a first-party trust like the D4A. It's not a third-party trust. It's actually a pooled trust that um, for people that have special needs, they can join this one trust. And with a joinder agreement, this nonprofit will run this bigger trust. Those trustees always um, have services available for these third-party trusts, and they know all that they need to know about the public benefits, the income tax, the inheritance tax, and all of the accounting rules. Wow. So. For parents that are really struggling to figure out who's going to help them assume the burden of worry when they die, to just understand the role of pooled trust and that the Special Needs Alliance does have a nice directory of, uh, across the country. Of where so help me understand that. Actually, I know of a family, and they wanted to set up. This was years ago when I was a financial planner, and I met with them. They had four children, and one of them was, had special needs. And they worked hard, and they came into a lot of money. And they wanted to set up their own trust, I think, similar to this. I was in my 20s when I met them, so I don't remember the whole scenario. So a pooled trust would be if I had a disabled child and they're young, you know, you don't know who's going to outlive who. Is this a trust they're going in with other people of their similar scenario or is it? No. So, no. so what a pooled trust means that somebody who's age, under age 65 has money that's going to prevent them from continuing to be eligible for the SSI and Medicaid. So what's great about a pooled trust is that if this person, you know, gets a gift on a holiday and they can't actually hold it, they can actually join the pooled trust and the nonprofit for contributions as low as $500 will collectively manage all the money for the disabled individuals. Okay? That trustee is working by itself to manage this collective money. That trustee ordinarily provide services where they can work on a different kind of trust, a third-party trust. And my recommendation would be that you pick um, a corporate trustee to work with an in individual so that, again, they're not looking at what they're doing over here in the pooled trust as much as how are we going to uh, manage the this third-party trust. And if they're coming into a significant amount of money, they may have more choices than just the pooled trust. They may have um, relationships with financial advisors, and the financial advisors may have relationships with trust companies. So again, you're putting the team together in advance so that really you're going to know what the fees are, you're going to have the chain of command, you're going to understand for this um, the special needs child, how do you make sure that the money is actually distributed? 
What well, how the, do you get your part of that? I, I'm, I'm a little lost here. How do you get my part so of it being if I what? Am, if I am the special needs child and I there's a pooled trust, how does that benefit me? Okay, so whether there's a pooled trust or a first party or a third party trust, the beneficiary is going to have a legal right to certain types of distributions of income or principal. And what happens is that the trustee is to analyze, you know, the life expectancy of the beneficiary, other potential resources, maintaining public benefits, and then make uh, you know good investments, prudent investments, and distributions. And so how does that child, that special needs child, no matter what age, they actually will, trustees will typically develop a budget for the recurring items, set up a payment system so that those payments are made automatically, and then there's usually an internal process so that if there is something that is uh, not a recurring issue but a you know, a special issue where there's a request for a distribution, then the request is made and every trust company or, or pooled trust will have a process as to whether it's a committee uh, that's going to make the decision and the timing of how long do you have to wait for that distribution and in what cases would they say no. So all of those things you discuss with the trustee before you actually name them. Okay. So you would, you as the professional, would be able to guide me to which would be the best trust for my scenario? Yes. Yeah, okay. I think, um, you know, I, what I generally do for people with um, resources that are not going to be appropriate for a bank or trust company, again, there's a list of uh, nonprofit pooled trustees that will be able to help, help them. And my suggestion is, is I'll tell them, you know, here's who you're going to call and make your own phone call. Do a gut check yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure that, you know, my recommendations for these choices, that it actually makes sense to you, too. Wow. Okay. And that website, again, is www.specialneedsalliance.org. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. And if the, for some reason it doesn't pop up, Google Special Needs Alliance, and you'll get it. Wow. Linda, this has been fantastic. Is there anything else you want to cover quickly before we sign off? Um, there have been some really interesting developments all related to special needs planning. And so, again, I would refer people to the um, you know, different websites for information about ABLE accounts. Mm-hmm. We just had a really interesting development in Pennsylvania relating to ABLE accounts where we can now get an income tax deduction. And how do you use a, an ABLE account? Um, within? Tell us a little definition of what is an ABLE account. So many parents are familiar with uh, 529 educational mm-hmm. um, oh, accounts. Okay. And those accounts are terrific because the money goes tax deferred. And when the distributions are made for qualifying educational expenses, there's no income tax. And so that Internal Revenue Code provision was used as a platform to create these ABLE accounts with the, with the goal of actually allowing a trust-like uh, account, which could be used for a beneficiary or an owner of account who has a qualifying disability before uh, a certain age, which is 26, so that if that person was disabled before age 26, then the money can go in 14000 a year up to certain caps for different um, issues. And then that account doesn't jeopardize their public benefits. And just as importantly, the distributions are not treated as income. So that when we're thinking about SSI. That's awesome. Yeah. Another thing to put in before it's a, you all of these sign things your agreement. are huge. That is and, huge. Um, there's, there's even, now there are paybacks for the ABLE accounts. So again, if you're the parent, you're not looking at this as a, a substitute for that third-party trust, but you absolutely can start to use these ABLE accounts in very subtle ways to sort of promote the independence of the child 
and to um, solve any of the um, you know, excess income or asset issues without actually having to have a formal first-party trust. Now, could you put $14,000 into an ABLE account and then also put $14,000 as a gift? Or is that considered the gift um, for t- income tax purposes for the parent? So when you think about all of these gifting rules, first of all, any gift technically is not taxable income unless it's unearned income for SSI, which is where we're, our worry is. And so the 14000 per person per year is just a federal estate and gift tax rule. The IRS wants to keep track of millionaires, whether they're giving away significant gifts during their life or at death. And right now, an individual can have over $5.5 million, and the IRS is just asking for information returns if your gift goes over 14000 That 14000 is also the number used for what you can use, what you can gift every year for an ABLE account. So it's a little confusing. Mm-hmm. But if somebody were to make a gift of 14000 into an ABLE account, that's considered to be the gift to that person per year. That if it's a married couple, they may be able to make an additional 14000 but it won't actually go to the ABLE account. Okay. And, um, and again, you know, there are um, other more complicated rules about, you know, gifting that we won't even get into. <laughs> Another show. Another show. <laughs> wow, what a wealth of information. And I'm sure many of you who are listening will be interested or would love to be in touch with Attorney Anderson. So, Linda, can you give us your contact information and what would be the best way for them to reach you directly if they would have questions? So the the website is AndersonElderLaw.com. We're located in media, but I'm lucky enough to have clients through the whole five-county area. Um, I am really limited to Pennsylvania. And the phone number is 610-566-4700. And if you would like to have contact Divorce You Solutions beyond that, you can also contact Catherine or myself, Karen, and we can direct you as well. So thanks again for joining our community. We would love to hear from you either via email or in the comments section below. Please like our Facebook page and our Instagram page. For more information about who we are and what we do, please visit our website at www.divorcetheletterusolutions.com. And we know that divorce is never easy, and although your life may be changing, change can be good. We want you to know you're not alone, and you will be okay. We'll talk to you soon. We chat because you matter.